This is the Out of Water Podcast. Out of Water is a production of Rio Vista Community Church in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. You can find it on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. If you like what you hear, please subscribe and tell a friend to help them find Out of Water also. Welcome, friends, to another episode of the Outer Water Podcast. I'm your host, Mark Lautenschlager, and joining me, as always, is our pastor of education, Reverend Sam Kastensmith. And just to give you all the built-in excuses right up front, <laughs> this is being recorded early in the morning, which means I'm not coherent. <laughs> and Sam is under the weather, which means he's not coherent. So if we get through Galatians chapter 3, and you have any inkling of what we're talking about, you are an amazing listener, and we're happy to have you <laughs> along for the ride. I think that's about the summary of it, Sam. Yeah, I agree. I agree. Yeah. Yeah. Hopefully my voice holds through this whole thing. Yeah. Yeah, mine's okay again Your this morning. Your voice sounds great. You know, it's, it's okay again this morning. Um, my voice has been stronger uh, of late, so I'm, I'm happy about that. It's... Uh, the hoarseness doesn't appear that it's going to be permanent. It's my voice is gradually clawing its way back into existence. So I'm very pleased about that. Yeah. So we come this week to Galatians chapter three. And if you've been following along with us so far, you know that we've been looking at a letter that Paul wrote to the church at Galatia. And the church at Galatia was founded by Paul probably founded the church, right, Sam? Well, he goes on missionary trips. His first missionary journey comes out into the Mediterranean and up into modern-day Turkey, which is where Galatia is. He goes through that territory. He'd have been familiar with the – because Galatia, remember, it's not a city. It's it's a region. And so this would have been sent to various – probably various churches that are in Galatia and different towns and villages. Um, But yeah, Paul had been through here. And when he went through his missionary journey through Galatia, he was met with all kinds of persecution. Um, Mm. Like if you remember in his first missionary journey that you read about in the book of Acts, it's like every town that he goes into, he's beaten, stoned, chased out. Yeah. that by the Jews who in the synagogues are really, really angry with this blasphemous idea that God would have become a man. To mm-hmm. them, it is unthinkable. And so it's actually causing lots and lots of turmoil in the synagogues through that region. Um, and the Jews that do come into the Christian camp are now trying to say, okay, how much of our how much of our Jewish life and how much of the the law of Moses and how much of all of the festivals and rituals and ceremonial law do we have to incorporate into our life in order to become Christians? Mm-hmm. Um, and and so there's lots of tension and misunderstandings about that all through the region. Yeah. Now, I have this question, sort of about the about what's going on in Galatia in general. It, you, know, I, you know, these folks are Gentiles, and so I'm just guessing that they don't have a, a really, really strong frame of reference for Jewish worship and custom. So it just, you know, I guess I find myself sitting around wondering, 
why is it that they're buying into this whole thing? Why, you know, and I know we don't know for sure. Um, Paul talks a little bit this chapter about who has bewitched you, you know, who's mm-hmm. led you astray. Um, is it the Jewish, are the Jewish believers, you know, who's, who's done this for, to you? Yeah. Uh, and, and so I find myself wondering why these Gentile believers, why did they decide to get caught up in the Jewish ceremonial law, period? Uh, they, were they looking at the Jews saying, well, these guys are the ones that really know about God, so we better listen to them? Or what was it? Well, and, and you know, 2,000 years after Jesus, it's really, really easy for us to consider Christianity and Judaism as two separate things, right? All right. Uh, you know, you take a poll, and they're considered different religions. Sure. But in, in the first century, as Christian, you know, Christianity is embryonic. They, you know, what is Christianity? It's a just Jewish a fulfillment. Sex, right? Well, that would have been considered that. But Christians don't consider themselves, you know, non-Jews. They would have considered themselves the completion of the Old Testament covenants. So, right. you know, a Jew that converts to Christianity doesn't say, oh, I'm no longer Jewish. They would say, no, 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 I'm Jewish, and I, I believe that our Messiah that's been promised has come. And so the early church is still very much believing it's not a new thing. It's just the fulfillment of what God's been promising for thousands of years. And so with that comes all of the stuff that God had been commanding for thousands Mm -hmm. of years. And so the question is, what has Jesus fulfilled that's that's no longer required for us, you know, that, that, that God does not expect or necessarily even desire from us anymore? And what, because this has been the fulfillment of a, of a Jewish faith that has existed for thousands of years, how much of that is fulfilled in Christ that's no longer something that we need to do? Right. Um, and so that, I think, is more the thing. They're looking to the Jewish heritage and, and the law of Moses to say, okay, well, if this is the fulfillment of God's promises going back 2,000 years, how much of this stuff do we need to incorporate into our Gentile lives? Sure. Sure. Well, I, I mean, which of us has not sung the old Sunday school song, if you're Jewish and you know it, skip the pork, right? I mean, that was like, <laughs> that was, you know, was I was, when I was in Sunday school, that was all the rage. That was the big song, you know? Uh, okay. Are you, is that, are you for real? No, I'm not okay. for real. I'm, I'm, I'm making this up. There was no song to that effect. Um, I was like, so, I, I didn't go to Sunday school when I was little. So, oh, really? Oh, I didn't have a choice. I did not have a choice. I, you know, my parents took me into Sunday school um, just because all the good Lutheran boys were trotted in for Sunday school. We paid as little attention as possible, but that, you know, we were there. I was like, that's that's pretty bizarre for a Sunday school. Yes, it is. Why would, would they be, be singing bizarre. if you're Jewish and you know it? You skip the skip pork. Skip the pork. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, and and then you and then you're thinking, well, he was Lutheran growing up. I I don't know much about Lutheran custom. Maybe I don't know. Yeah. So no, Lutherans don't sing that song. So uh, let's look at Galatians chapter three, beginning in verse one. Paul writes, "O foolish Galatians." Who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. 
to tie the question of being led astray by by looking back and saying, you saw what Jesus went through for you. You saw what Jesus, what they did to Jesus. Mm-hmm. And so you can turn away. You can, you can get back into this. You can start keeping the law again after you saw what they did to Jesus. Mm-hmm. Um, that's a pretty... That's a tough question to answer. That's one of those. If Paul asked me that question, I'd be saying, "I hope that's rhetorical." Paul, is that rhetorical? Oh, yeah. is that, oh, that's a rhetorical question. <laughs> good, good. I'll just, yeah. you know, but it, what he's doing with this wordplay is actually something that's that's a little lost when it's translated out of the Greek because, and it's a great translation when it says "who has bewitched you" because the idea behind that is is almost it's like mesmerizing it's it's hypnotic who has who's put you in a trance what have you been you know like you know they used to have snakes that you would stare at and and you would the snake would kind of put its prey into a trance just looking into the eyes and that's kind of the idea like what have you been looking at that has put you in a trance and made you forget everything else and then he shifts and he says Remember when that same hypnotic, overwhelming power was before your eyes when you were looking at the fact that God the Son in Jesus Christ was crucified and you were mesmerized by that. Now all of a sudden you're you're being mesmerized by some other thing. What is it? What has yeah. put you in this trance? And he's contrasting the two and saying, is it more beautiful than God's own Son coming and being crucified for you? Mm-hmm. Which is... The question. I mean, that's right. the crux of the matter in Galatians. Like, what is more powerful than the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus to purchase your salvation? What are right. you looking to? What are you looking yeah. to now? Well, and then he asks a question which I don't think is rhetorical, but it's, <laughs> it's an excellent follow-up question to that first one. In verse 2, he says, Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by hearing with faith? And I think that that's, you know, what he's driving home to them is this experience that you had. You've already had the experience of of coming to Christ in faith. You've already received the Holy Spirit. You've already gone through this, you know, rebirth into the family of God. Did you do that by the works of the law? (laughs) And the answer, he knows the answer to that is no. Um, he knows what their experiences were. So he's basically just saying, tell me about your experiences. Tell me what it was that, you know, that allowed you to receive the Spirit. Mm-hmm. You know, was it how well you kept the law? Well, no, it would not mm-hmm. have been. Um, so that, I think, is, a, is an excellent question to ask them about because the first question from verse 1 is a question about what they observed. You saw what they did to Jesus. Question Mm -hmm. two in in verse two is a question about in your own personal experience, this is what happened to you. Mm -hmm. Um, Those are two things that these, these guys should have known Perfectly, They should have known what happened to them because it happened to them. Mm -hmm. And they should have known what they did to Jesus because they did it publicly. Mm Mm-hmm. And and one of the things that I love that he's doing, he's writing to Galatia, and he's saying, you experienced this. You know, Mm -hmm. like all of you, you experienced what it was like to receive the Spirit. 
And it didn't come by the works of the law. It came by faith. And I mean, we can all relate to that, even from a kind of a more emotional level. You know, when if I sit down and I read the Ten Commandments, I can see the brilliance of them. I can, I can, I can sense God's wisdom in them. I, I see His character in them. But I don't read the Ten Commandments and go, "Oh my goodness, God loves me so much." I feel exhilarated and and overwhelmed. And but you put in the stories of God's redemption or His love that's expressed on the cross or the way that He cares for the downtrodden, and you put yourself into those places, and that'll bring tears to my eyes. That'll make me want to worship. And and what what Paul is getting at here, like, okay, if you're trying to find intimacy and unity with God through the works of the law, the law, when you read it, is just showing you, man, I don't measure up. You know, I broke that one and this one and that one and this one and I fail and I can't, I can't be good enough. And I'm, you know, it's never going to make you say, ah, I'm finally worthy of God. I feel so liberated and wonderful. But when you hear the pardoning voice of the gospel come and say that Jesus has done it for you and he loves you enough to suffer for you and to give his life for you. And now you're free and embraced and accepted by God. That is when you experience joy. That's when you start to sense in a, in more powerful ways the spirit moving in and through you. Yeah. Yeah. And then we have several more questions which are sort of related to these to the opening thing. I mean the opening salvo is about what they saw and what they experienced. And now it's like we're going to be we're going to ask you some questions about you know, your flesh, and he, he jumps in at verse four and says, are you so foolish having begun by the spirit? Are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain? If indeed it was in vain. Um, what do you, th- when they talks about, did you suffer so many things in vain? Uh, is he referring to the persecution that they would face from their fellow, you know, residents of the region of Galatia, or do you, or is there some other uh, suffering that the church here underwent? Yeah, no, I think I think that's what it's about. He experienced it. Remember when his in his first missionary journey, sure, when he's going through these regions, it's intense persecution. The persecution is so intense that one of the people that he brought along with him, John Mark, who writes the Gospel of Mark, you know, he's a young believer at this point does not want to go on the second missionary journey and, in fact, bails on the first missionary journey because it's too hard. Yeah. That's going to set up a, a battle between Paul and Barnabas about whether or not John Mark should be invited back to a missionary right. journey. But it was right. hard. It, it wasn't easy. Everywhere they went, they were persecuted and hated and driven out and seen as, as blasphemous and Christianity spreading and starting all this tension in the synagogues and Jewish communities, and they're determined to stamp it out. Yeah. Uh, and, and remember, Paul who is a zealous Pharisee but prior to his conversion, comes from Tarsus, which is right next door to Galatia. So he was one of these Jews originally. So it's it's rampant through those communities of that region. Mm-hmm. And he's like, man, you were willing to suffer so much to grab hold of the gospel. And now after suffering all that, you're just sliding right back to, yeah. to everything that they were trying to force you to do. Yeah. Well, and now Paul's going to invoke the name of Abraham, um, mm-hmm. which 
will pull them up short because Abraham is the progenitor of the mm-hmm. Jewish nation. Um, and yet he's going to say that, hey, Gentiles, you all have a relationship with mm-hmm. Abraham also. Mm-hmm. Uh, Paul starts in verse 5 where he says, Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness, know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the Scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So Paul is basically connecting them to an ancient faith, and he's connecting them to one of the progenitors of the Jewish nations, to the to the founder, I guess, of the Jewish nation. Mm-hmm. He's making that connection. So he's saying, you're not some new add-on. You're not something that... that God didn't foresee. God wants you to know that he's had this in his mind all the time. Yeah. And one of the main themes that you're going to see in the book of Galatians is Paul is, is taking the covenant that was given to Abraham and the covenant that was given to Moses that seemed to be at tension. And he's playing this out as to how you're supposed to see these covenants. And so I'm going to, I'm going to pause here. And, and take the risk of going down the road of explaining how these covenants play out, because I think it's important. You, I mean, if you go back to the very, very beginning of Scripture, you have God who comes to Adam immediately after the fall, and he announces his promise that he is going to bring forth the seed of the woman who's going to crush the head of the snake. In other words, God is making a covenant with all humanity, that there is going to be a savior sent who's going to rescue humanity from death, who's going to defeat evil. And that covenant was made with all of humanity. Then you fast forward and God makes essentially the same covenant with Noah, that he's going to be merciful to all humanity, that he wants him to be fruitful and to multiply. And you get the idea, okay, well, where's the savior going to come from? And we don't know until you get to Abraham. And when you get to Abraham, God identifies the specific group of people or family line through which the Savior is going to come. And he says to Abraham, I'm going to multiply your descendants. I'm going to be with you. And I, through through your seed, through your descendant, all nations on earth are going to be blessed. And then he gives it to Isaac, and he gives it to Jacob, and he gives it to Judah, and on down the line through King David. And that promise was unilateral, which meant this, God saying, I'm going to do this, period, end of story. But Moses, the covenant with Moses comes along, and it's a little different. And, you know, Moses is there when the nation of Israel is kind of born. It's given all the laws, the civil laws, the moral laws, uh, all of it, ceremonial laws. And God comes to the people in Moses' day and said, hey, I will do all of this stuff if you do your part, if you obey. And so you have the covenant with Abraham, which is God saying, I am going to bless you no matter what. It's not contingent on what you do. It's all by me. And then you have the covenant given to Moses, which says, I'm going to bless you, my people, if you obey me. And so you have this great 
tension, uh, tremendous tension. Okay, or is it by the law or is it by faith? Is it like, you know, you did with Abraham where it's just you're going to bless no matter what. You didn't give him any conditions. Or is it Moses? And so what the gospel does is Jesus steps in and takes the place of the nation of Israel, right? He comes in as the representative figure, God's son, who keeps the law perfectly. The first time in history that any figure in all of Israel has kept the law, and he fulfills the covenant of Moses for us, gives us his perfect righteousness so that covenant can be fulfilled. Because prior to that, the law of Moses just condemned us. We could never keep it. We always failed. The people of God always failed to keep it. And through that also, now God has kept his covenant to Abraham, which is to bless all nations on earth through the seed of Abraham, because that seed has fulfilled the law of Moses for us. And so you have these competing covenants, and what the Judaizers and the Jews of that day failed to understand is the law of Moses has been fulfilled. It's no longer a curse or a burden around the neck of the people of God. It's fulfilled. I imagine that would be a a difficult thing for them to to perceive because... Mm -hmm. They're thinking it's been fulfilled, but they're also thinking, I didn't do it. You know, I haven't changed in any way. Mm-hmm. So part of part of that is going to be their recognition of who of who Jesus was. Because mm-hmm. if Jesus didn't keep the law perfectly, then there's no redemption, there's no salvation, there's mm-hmm. nothing available uh, in his name. But instead, he did. But he did these things, and therefore, we're completely removed from being under the law by his being able to keep it perfectly. And yeah. Paul's going to say that here in just a second. Yeah, and um, there, there's a line that's really, really important to Paul, and it's it's comes. He's quoting Genesis chapter 15, verse 6, when he says, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. And what what Paul is saying is in that moment in the scriptures, we see that Abraham had faith. He believed the promise of God and God looked at him and said, you're righteous because you believe, not because you did something, not because you followed the law. You had faith in the promise of God and therefore I'm considering you righteous. You're saved. Right. You're you're right. clean. You're you're mine. And when Paul was growing up, one of the heroes of the zealous Pharisees was a guy named Phineas. And they they really lifted up two people because the zealous Pharisees believed that you would go around and you would kill anyone who didn't keep the law because it endangered God's ability to bless Israel in their mind. One of them was Elijah. And the reason why they loved Elijah is Elijah went, remember the contest at Mount Carmel, and he killed all the prophets of Baal. Mm -hmm. And they're like, ooh, killing evil people. We like that. And Phineas in the Old Testament is a, is a character that comes in Numbers um, chapter 26 or 25, I believe. And Phineas comes and he kills a couple, a, an Israelite and a Moabite woman who are in the middle of relations. And he kills them to protect the holiness of God's people. And in Psalm 106, it says, because of Phineas's zeal, 
it was credited to him as righteousness. It's the same exact language. Psalm, I think it's Psalm 106, uh, verse 31. This was credited to him as righteousness for endless generations to come. And so the, the zealous Pharisees thought, okay, well, we get our righteousness by zeal of persecuting people who, who stand against our, our, our righteous way of living. And so Paul was like, okay, deal. I'll get my righteousness from putting people to death. And for the first part of his life, that's how he lived. Mm-hmm. Now, what's, what's fascinating, and we got to break on that and hold that thought for a moment, but the story of Phineas comes at the tail end of the story of Balaam. And if you know the story of Balaam, it's this Moabite prophet who is conscripted by the Moabite king to go and pronounce prophetic curses on the people of Israel who had come into the territory of Moab. And so what happens? You have this kind of false prophet who's mounted on a donkey who is riding to pronounce judgment upon the people of God, and God stops him on the road Hear, hear this. He stops him on the road, confronts him supernaturally. The angel of the Lord comes and he shifts the prophet Balaam's heart to where after that, now Balaam starts writing letters, blessing the people of God and turning against the people of Moab. And, and it's just fascinating to me that that's Paul's experience too, right? You think, who's Balaam? He is somebody who's on the wrong mission. He gets on his donkey to go persecute God's people, and God stops him on a road supernaturally and says, no, 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 you're persecuting the wrong people, (laughs) and then shifts him, and then Balaam starts writing letters, and it's like that's Paul's life story. He was a prophet playing for the wrong team, stopped on a road in the middle of a mission to go persecute God's people, and he shifted around. And so when he comes across and is studying God's grace as opposed to zeal, and he sees, wait a minute, Abraham believed God, and God credited it to him as righteousness, that same thing, all of a sudden he's saying, no, 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 God's blessing comes by faith, not this zeal to the law or this zeal to persecute others. And Abraham is, or sorry, Paul is going to have a radical transformation having gone from somebody who's zealous for the law to being somebody who is absolutely committed to the idea that you are saved and made righteous by faith alone. Hmm. Hmm. Uh, Verse 9, so then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. Verse 10, for all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now, it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. Um, you know, obviously Paul here is reminding them of, the, you know, of the basics, uh, but by proclaiming that, you know, cursed is everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law, you know, Jesus would not have been cursed by this because he does obey everything in the book of the law but Jesus took a curse upon himself when he went to the cross because there was a Jewish tradition that anybody or Jewish anybody that hung on a tree was considered to be cursed by God and so he took that position 
Mm-hmm. I'm even going to go so far as taking on the curse that you would get by not being able to keep it. It wasn't just that Jesus kept all the requirements of the law perfectly. He did. But even beyond that, he said, I'm going to take the curse on me also. You know, the, the curse that you would have had for not keeping the law perfectly, I'll take that on the cross with me and satisfy that as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and Jesus emerges as the only person and the history of the world who is saved by works. Yeah. Uh, he did not have the option of grace. When he was living, you know, if, if Jesus had rebelled against the Father, which is kind of an unthinkable thought, right? But if he had rebelled against the Father, there's, there's no grace or mercy for him. There's no one who lived it in his place. He had to earn it. He had to keep the law perfectly. And his you know, resurrection, his, you know, ascension into heaven comes because he kept the law perfectly. He was, he, he obeyed the law perfectly. And as a result, all the rest of us share in his righteousness, which he gives to us. And now we're saved by grace, but only one person in the history of the world could be saved by the works of the law. And it was him. And That was, you know, his faithfulness throughout his life, every moment of his life where he, in hard moments, had to surrender to the will of the Father and submit to the will of the Father as opposed to doing what, you know, the flesh, you know, he didn't have a sinful flesh, but he certainly didn't want to be tortured and crucified, didn't want to be alone, didn't want to be poor, didn't want to be hungry. Um, But he did those things and submitted to the will of the Father, never once failing in that respect. And his obedience is evidence of his love for us every bit as much as his suffering and death. Um, mm-hmm. You know, when he resisted the the advances of the serpent in the wilderness, all the temptations, why did he do that? Because he was determined to purchase a righteousness for us and to honor his father. Mm-hmm. Um, his obedience is a gift every bit as much as his death was. Right. So... Paul goes on to write, but the law is not a faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. Um, if you're going to be if you're going to be following the law, well, then faith is not necessary. But this is what you're setting yourself up for: is that if you're going to follow this law, you've got to follow the law perfectly. Mm-hmm. There's no there's no wiggle room here. If you want to do the law thing and do it yourself, okay, knock yourself out, go for it. But if you're going to rely on faith, then this law thing doesn't enter into it anymore either. You know, he's drawing a clear distinction uh, between the two of them. It boggles my mind that that there are people who believe that that's even possible. You know, that there are some people who, some sects of people who consider themselves Christian who believe that you can attain sinless perfection in this life. That, that you can keep the whole of the law without fail. And I don't understand how they reach it. You know, there's the, the epistle of John says, if you claim that you don't sin, you call God a liar. But there are people who believe that. I remember one time, and, and this is long ago, long enough ago where I feel comfortable sharing it, where I was, I was at an event and we were talking about uh, grandparents. And during that, one of, one of the people that I really loved got up and, and ran to the back of the room, and I noticed that she was kind of upset. And later I went up to her and I said, everything okay? And she told me you know, that her mom, the grandmother, had, had passed away, and she was really upset about it and embarrassed by it. 
and and talking came to realize she was embarrassed because the wages of sin is death and she didn't want anyone to know that her mom had sinned and death was seen as shameful and it just blew me away that there could be anybody who's walking around under the weight of that mm. um i mean it's it sounds like how everybody has died like nobody has escaped this ever except for jesus like he's the only one who who's conquered death in and of his own merit like well, how do you why would you be ashamed that your mom died but right. there are people out there who really feel the pressure and stress that their relationship with God hinges upon them keeping the law perfectly. Mm-hmm. Where, you know, for both of us, we hear that and go, you have to keep the whole law? Not a chance. <laughs> like, right. I know I know myself and my brokenness too much. Like, if there is no hope of grace, I'm up a creek. Right. I know my heart too well. Right. Well, and uh, now we have essentially Paul stating the same thing that I was talking about earlier about this curse. Verse 13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. It's that curse that you get for not keeping everything. By becoming a curse for us, for it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, again, Paul making this point of saying, look, you guys have it all wrong. You know, you're trying to keep the law or, and so, or certain elements of the law, and you are putting yourself back under this curse when Jesus has freed you from it. It should be the easiest thing in the world, honestly, for us to say, "What, God? You've you've freed us from the curse. You've you've kept the law so that because we can't, you know." To me, it feels like that ought to be one of the easiest things in the world to understand and to acknowledge and to live by. Mm-hmm. But it's just not that way. It's just there are still people out there who, if if you ask them why they would say. You know, they have a good standing with God. How's your relationship with God? That's good, man. It's all right. You know, I try to do the, I try to keep all the important rules. Mm -hmm. You know, it's like that kind of thing. So we, you know, by nature, we are not rule keepers. By nature, we're not rule keepers. And yet, that's how we want to present ourselves to God as, hey, look, God, you know, we kept the rules. So, and this is the big thing, I think. So, you owe us. Mm-hmm. You owe us entry into your heaven because we've kept your rules. Even And even as they're saying that, they're praying that God grades on a curve because they didn't keep them all. <laughs> yeah. You know? Um, but it, it's just, it feels to me like it should be the easiest thing in the world. There's never been a point in which I've sat down to read Scripture and I thought, man, I want to try keeping that law. You know, mm-hmm. I just, it, it, I can't. I just won't, um, and yet not for long. Yeah, that for well, five six seconds. Yeah, <laughs> uh, but it, but there are certainly people out there who believe that that is how they earn favor and and have a good relationship with God is my keeping His commandments and 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 it's not that we shouldn't keep the commandments. It's not that we shouldn't follow the law. We should. It's a useful guide to how God wants us to live. 
but it's something that we cannot keep it perfectly. And if we can't keep it perfectly, then we fail it in every respect. And the mm-hmm. only way for us to be able to have that right standing with God is through is by faith. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, in Romans fourteen twenty three, just to even intensify that, Paul says everything that does not come from faith is sin, which is kind of mind blowing. But if if you were doing really, really wonderful charitable things and you were doing it so that you could get a pat on the back, you know, you were you were funding hospitals and you were feeding the poor and you did it so that everybody would recognize, man, Sam Caston Smith's an amazing guy. If it's not done by faith, it's sin. Which is yeah. like even your Isaiah talks about even your most righteous acts are like filthy rags. Like everything is tainted. Even if you do the right thing, you know, externally, internally, you're you're making it about you. You know, you're you're in the Sam Caston Smith aggrandizing show. You know, and <laughs> really, I mean, how often I'm a pastor. I pray in front of people. And so often I find that as I'm praying, I'm going, what do they think of this? Is this any good? When I'm preaching, you know, I want people to fall in love with Jesus, but I'm thinking, is this any good? What do people think of my preaching? Like, it's so hard to do anything without there being this self-centered, you know, it's the me show. And what Paul is saying is like, everything that doesn't come from faith, if you're doing this in your own strength with no mind toward God, no heart toward God, no no faith that's driving it, it's sin. You know, it's the best way that I could come up with something to to give an analogy to is is if I did all the right things for my wife, right? You know, I, right. I, I, I emptied the dishwasher and I gave her flowers and I wrote her poetry and I brought her candies and I, I did all the things that I know she wants me to do, all the actions, all the works, I do them all. But there's absolutely no affection. There's no heart. There's no relationship. Like, Laura doesn't want that. Right. It would it'd be gross to her. Uh, it would feel like a dead and cold and clinical marriage. And that's what this is communicating. If it's not coming from a heart of relationship where God wants you to draw near to him, he doesn't want your obedience. He doesn't want your works. If they're not coming with a heart that wants to draw near to him, because your works aren't the prize to God. You are. He's purchased you. And the same is true. Like if it's not coming from that place that wants to be with him and to see him smile and then it, he's, he's not interested. Yes. Um, your wife would look at your well executed, but poorly, you know, connected to any emotions, actions and say, okay, what did you do? <laughs> what is this you have done here, Sam? <clears throat> you know, I know that's what would happen here. You know, my wife would be like, hmm, you know, just how, just how big of a hole have you dug yourself into this time? Completely. Yeah. So, so now Paul wants to give us a different kind of example. In verse 15, he starts with, to give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. So once you set up a contract or a covenant, a relationship between two people, and you you agree on it, shake hands, you know, spit in your palm, whatever you've got to do to, to make yourself feel like this one is locked in for sure, then nobody messes with it. You know, that mm-hmm. 
that covenant stays in place. Then he goes on to say, now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. I am curious, why do you think Paul's making a big deal here about the fact that the promise was made to one offspring of Abraham and not to all of Abraham's descendants? Well, I think the the blessing for both covenants, Jesus is going to be the one that is the fulfillment of them. Um, it is not going to be, and what he's saying here is, it's not going to be all of your offspring, Abraham, that bless the nations, because that's that's the promise that Paul is hanging his hat on. Right. Where is it that the world gets blessed through the offspring of Abraham? And it's going to be one offspring, is what Paul is arguing, that becomes the blessing to all the nations. Mm-hmm. And and that comes through Christ. You know, as much as, as I love David and as much as I love, you know, the heroes of the Old Testament, you know, they're they're flash in the pan. They're here today, gone tomorrow. They didn't do anything that sustainably blessed all the nations on earth and brought salvation to all nations on earth apart from carrying on and protecting the messianic line until the one offspring, Jesus, was born. And in him all nations on earth are blessed. Hmm. So then Paul continues in verse 17. He says, this is what I mean. The law, which came 430 years afterward, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise, but God gave it to Abraham by a promise. Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made and it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. Um, again, we have this kind of, uh, am I dealing with one or, or many? You know, an intermediary makes it sound like there was a n- number of them, but I'm here to tell you there was only one, which would have been Jesus in this particular mm-hmm. case. Um, I, I'm just, there's, there's some back and forth here that's a little confusing. It sounds like he's talking about the promises made to Abraham, and then he's talking about the law of Moses, which mm-hmm. came along but did nothing to set aside the promise made to Abraham. Correct. Okay, so then that promise of, to Abraham, which is you are going to be, you are justified because of your faith, you're going to be the father of a great nation, you're through, they're going to bless all the nations of the earth, all of those things, all of those promises, mm-hmm. the law had no effect on. Yeah. So I, I'm trying to think. Let me give you an example. Let's say I take my son, Caleb, and I say, hey, Caleb, when you turn 25, I am giving you all of my bank accounts. E- everything that I own becomes yours when you turn 25, period. Right. So that's a one way covenant. I haven't said, hey, Caleb, if you do this, then you get the money. You know, if you reach 25, you get the money, period. It's all my decision one way. It's a gift. 
But then let's say, okay, in addition to that, Caleb, between now and your age of 25, if you do all of your chores around the house, I'm going to pay you 20 bucks a week. Now, all of it, that's more like the Moses covenant. If you, then I. If you obey, then I'll bless you. And it's, it's a covenant of works. It's a covenant of the law. Well, if, if Caleb never does his chores, that doesn't nullify the promise that I made that I'm going to give him all my wealth at 25, right? right. And so, so God came to Abraham and said, I'm going to rescue the entire world through your seed, period. There was no conditions on that. None. It was, I'm going to rescue the world through you, Abraham, period. Moving right along. Hmm. Then when you get to Moses, it's, Moses, this is my covenant with, your, with the, my people. And by the way, Moses comes you know, 600, 500, 600 years after Abraham, after they'd been in Egypt and all that for 400 years. And he comes and says, okay, here's the law. If you obey it, things are going to go well with you. If you obey it, you're going to stay in the land. If you obey it, you're going to find your families are blessed. If you obey it, you won't be thrown into exile, on and on and on. Here's, here's you know, different ways that you can offer thanksgiving and find, a, you know, at least atonement sacrifices and all these kinds of things. Mm-hmm. But if you don't do them, there's going to be consequences and you will find that favor lifts and you do get put into exile and you do suffer consequences. But through that whole time, God's promise of using his people to bring forth a line that will lead to the Messiah that will bring forth the salvation of the world is never once in jeopardy because of how screwy the the Israelites are. And that's what Paul is saying. The first promise that he made to Abraham is not jeopardized by the fact that we don't keep the law. God's promise of grace triumphs over the covenant of the law because Jesus fulfilled the law. He's taken care of that covenant. You know, and, and you see that one of the things, one of the points that Paul will make in Romans is that when God comes to him in Genesis 15 and he says, Abraham believed God and, and God credited it to him as righteousness, God puts that part of Abraham's story in an interesting place because right before that, Abraham had done something pretty shameful. He'd gone down to Egypt. He had given his wife over to Pharaoh. This is after God's promise that he's going to give a son. And Abraham doesn't trust God. He shows doubts. He he messes up. Then God has a moment where he says, hey, Abraham, you believed my promise. Therefore, you're going to be saved. And it's not a whole lot longer after that that Abraham's like, nah, I don't think God's going to keep his promise. We should bring in Hagar so that we can have kids. And he obeys, you know, listens to Sarah's recommendation to bring Hagar in. He sleeps with his maidservant, has Ishmael. And it's like, oh my gosh, that's clearly wrong. That's way outside the boundaries of what God wanted. And yet what Paul will argue in, in Romans is Abraham's salvation was not at risk. And God intentionally and rather beautifully shows you that Abraham screwed up before he was saved, and he screwed up after he was saved, and yet that didn't compromise the fact that God had already credited righteousness to him. Hmm. He was saved even though he had been a mess, and even though he will still be a mess going forward, God's covenant was with him, and that could not be shaken. And that's the hope that we have. Before we come to Christ, we're a mess, you know, right? 
after we come to Christ, we're being sanctified. We're growing more into his image. We're trying to please him. We're, 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 you know, we're, we're wanting to make him smile and obey him. But at the same time, we're still going to be a mess. We're still going to make mistakes. We're still going to fall short. And yet, just like with Abraham, God's covenant to Abraham was never jeopardized by the fact that Abraham wasn't good enough. It was secure because God was good enough. So, verse 21, Paul asks another question. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Because it seems, it seems on the surface of it that it is. God makes promises. Then he makes these laws, which people don't keep. But it's okay because God doesn't break his promises. So, it's a, it's a logical question to ask. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Paul writes, certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. So what, what he's saying is that God's promises, that you know his, his promises regarding faith and and how it is that we would find life through salvation by grace that he's saying that those things are designed to give life but the law never was Mm -hmm. that the law was never designed to give anybody life because he knew in advance that we couldn't keep it now Mm -hmm. i think it's interesting as sinners yeah but I, i think it's interesting don't you that that while that's true, and I can see how it's true, the fact is that the perfect man who kept the law, being Jesus, mm-hmm. that that act of law-keeping followed by his crucifixion was the thing that gave life to everyone. Mm-hmm. It's like there's, a, there's an irony to me in that. It's mm-hmm. like God didn't give the law so that we could have life through the law because he knew we wouldn't. But in, mm-hmm. but because one man did keep the law, we have life through his perfect keeping of the law and his subsequent death on the cross. Mm-hmm. Um, I think yeah, that that's, that's just ironic. That that it's I I understand law doesn't give life, but it, but through Jesus and what Jesus did, in a way, it does. Yeah, and and there's a big difference. Like when Jesus is born, this is this is one of the reasons for the importance of the virgin birth. When Jesus is born, he doesn't come forward with a sinful nature. He's, he's born as the Son of God. He does not inherit the sinful nature of mankind. And therefore, when he keeps the law, it's perfect righteousness. But for us, we're born with a sinful nature. We're, right. we're born with sinful genetics. And even if we kept the law, there's something that's broken and, you know, somewhat defective in us that makes us self-absorbed. You don't, you know, like you say, you don't have to teach a toddler to be selfish. <laughs> you know, right. they, they, they know how, <laughs> right, yeah, right, right out of the gates. Yeah. And so God could come and give a law and it's not going to rescue us. It's just going to reveal that there's something defective in us. The law can't save us. Jesus being perfect, having having righteousness out of the gates and innocence out of the gates, the law, he could keep it. He could he could own it and finish it and fulfill it and it would bring life to the world. But us, even if there was some fluke where somebody could keep the law their whole life, 
the fact that they have a fallen nature, a sinful nature from the start, makes it broken. It it can't give life mm-hmm. because even at birth, we're marred by a sinful nature and we're destined for the grave. Right. Okay, so verse 22, Paul says, but the scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Now, before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then, the law was our guardian until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Mm -hmm. Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. Mm -hmm. It's interesting to say that the Scripture imprisoned everything under sin. The Scripture imprisons, the law is a guardian. Um, how did you know? How does that come to pass? How is the law our guardian, and how did Scripture imprison us? Well, if you go back to the to the very beginning, um, from the very first thing, from, from the very first relationship that God has with humanity, with Adam and Eve, you you learn very quickly that salvation comes by faith, right? You you have God who promises that the seed of the woman is going to bring salvation to the world. And yet death is going to claim humanity. And when you see Eve go through childbirth, which is going to be painful, and she knows it's going to be painful, and yet she embraces it and brings forth children, you you gain this idea. Okay, Eve is believing in the promise. She's bringing forth children. The same with Abraham and on and on. And throughout the Old Testament, people were not saved by keeping the law. They were saved by looking at the promise of God that he would send, you know, a seed of the woman who would crush the head of the snake. He would, they were saved by looking forward to the seed of Abraham that would bless all the nations on earth. They were saved by looking to the one the prophets wrote about who would come and establish kingdom of righteousness and who, who, who our iniquities would fall on him and he would be punished for our sin. So all through the Old Testament, you were saved by looking forward to the Messiah who was promised. Now we're saved by looking backward at the Messiah who came. But everybody has always been saved by faith in the Messiah. It's just a matter of whether they were looking forward to him or looking backward at him. But when it says that the law was a guardian, everything about the law was to to help people realize that they desperately needed a savior. You know, the law comes and it's a tutor. On one side, it shows you the character of God through which you can worship. Like David talks about how he delights in the law. It, it, it reflects God's character and who he is and how holy he is and how righteous he is. And it's wonderful. But the law is also bad for us because we can't keep it. The mm-hmm. law's good. We're not. You know, that's, that's the problem. And so the law, it humbles us. But then all of the the ceremonial law where they would have to come and make offerings and atonements, all of that was pointing you toward the ultimate temple, the ultimate priest, the ultimate lamb of God. But it's training in, in the hearts of all the people. You know what? They need to have something like circumcision. They need to have their uncleanness cut away. They need – there has to be a sacrifice 
an atonement for their sin. There has to be a humbling and a cleansing. And all of these laws, these ritualistic laws, are just pointing their hearts and training their hearts that they need something outside of themselves. You can't possibly save yourself. So now in verse 26, uh, Paul writes this. He says, For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. I have a question about that because, you know, today in our modern 21st century uh, humanism, good boys go to heaven, bad boys go to hell theology, I don't even know what to call that. That's like the theology of men um, that we all agree that, you know, and then if you want to throw in the the 21st century, um, everybody gets a participation trophy <laughs> rule. Um, then it would be, and God grades on a curve, so we all get in, mm-hmm. you know, that kind of thing. Um, none of those things are true, but that, that does seem to be the theology of mankind in this era. In that era, Sam, what would it have meant to that audience to be told, in Christ, you are all sons of God? Oh, my goodness. Like, uh, it, that, would have, that would have been scandalous to hear, actually. Yeah, yeah. Um, to, to assume that kind of a role. Now, you got to remember the context of what, what Paul has been talking about in this chapter is, you know, what, for one, he's talking about is the promise to a single heir or to many heirs, many descendants of Abraham. And right. so for a lot of this chapter, they're talking about, okay, who's, who is the son of Abraham? Who are sons of Abraham? And, and what he's concluding with here is that because of what Jesus did, because faith has come, because you're no longer under the guardian of the law because Jesus fulfilled that for you, mm-hmm. it's not just that you're children of Abraham by faith. You've now graduated because you're clothed in the righteousness of Christ, Christ to become the very sons of God. So put aside being a son of Abraham. You're a son of God in Christ. You've been promoted. You're so much greater than you even imagine. And, and he's showing them, like, this is, faith gives you so much more than the law ever could. Right. So set it aside. You're a son of God. You're entitled to an inheritance from the infinite being in the universe who loves you and is sovereign over you. You have access to him like a son. You have his comfort like a son. You have an inheritance like a son or daughter. Like, it's it's kind of an overwhelming thing. And by the way, because you're a son, you will not be disowned. Hmm. Okay. I mean, that has to be, to me, the big value of it is that um, if I were to say to you, I'd like you to meet Kyle, um, he's, you know, he's, he's a good friend. Well, okay, my son is my friend. But he's also my son. And even if he wasn't a particularly good friend, I'm not going to turn away from him because he's my son. Mm -hmm. Um, The fact that he's a really nice guy and he's a good friend to his father, that's a bonus on top of that. But he's my son, and I'm certainly not going to break relationship with my son. Mm -hmm. Uh, And that's the way this is too. You know, you have, this should make you have even less to fear about how committed God is to his part of the relationship. It's like he has called you a son of God. Mm -hmm. That's a big deal. 
Yeah, and your relationship to the law also reflects that. Like as a son, you know, when my kids make a mistake, you know, they might come to me and feel remorse. That's not a bad thing. You know, you want to do better. You want to do what pleases your father. But at no point, you know, if my son forgets to empty the dishwasher, he's not coming to me going, are you going to cast me away? Like, it wouldn't even cross his mind. He knows he's safe with me even when he fails. And so when Paul is saying, you are all sons, you're, you're the children of God, all of that fear, you know, like you, you mentioned, all of that's gone. You know, now you have the desire to please God because he's a father. He's a loving father. He's, he's, trem- he's incredibly eminent and near and intimate with you. It, it changes the motivation for how you relate to him. He's not a distant, objective God who's calling balls and strikes on the law. And, you know, you'd better be good enough or he's going to strike you down. Like that is over with. Right. You're a son. You're a daughter. So verse 27 is, I think, another verse that carries just as much weight. Because here Paul introduces another subject when he says, For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. Um, Because that's the other thing that we emphasize and talk about in terms of this sort of positional identity, you know, this identity you have in God. What is your identity? Your identity is that you're a son of God. And Mm -hmm. on top of that, if you were baptized into Christ, then you have put on Christ, referring to his righteousness, his robe of righteousness. So when God perceives you, he Mm -hmm. perceives you as, as having the righteousness of his son and of, in fact, being a son. So he's going to have the same reaction to you as he would have to any of his sons mm-hmm. or daughters. Um, so I think that that's also an important thing as well, is this it's, idea that we are we have put on Christ. Mm-hmm. When when Jesus is baptized, so okay, Paul is pointing to some some major things here: baptism, being clothed in Christ. All when Jesus goes down to be baptized, and the you remember John the Baptist is like, whoa, 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 whoa! This is a baptism of repentance. Like you should be baptizing me, not right. me, you. And you Jesus, have nothing to repent of. You know? Yeah, exactly. And Jesus tells him, well, let me explain why I'm being baptized. I'm being baptized to fulfill all righteousness. Well, what does he mean to fulfill all righteousness? What he's saying is, I'm coming to fulfill all that my people have been unable to do. And then when he comes out of the waters after being baptized, what does God the Father say to him? This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. And now, because you've been baptized into Christ and you've put on his righteousness, guess what the Father says over you? This is my beloved son or daughter with whom I am well pleased. You get the same perspective from God towards you that he feels toward Christ because you're clothed in Christ. Yeah. That's yeah. amazing yeah. that God sees you with that kind of light. Well, it is. And it, it is the kind of thing that should give you a feeling of security as you're considering What's going to happen when I stand before God and meet him face to face? You know, doesn't the Bible tell me that I'm going to have to give an accounting 
of all that I have done? And the answer to that is yes, it does. Mm-hmm. It says you're going to have to give an account, an account of all that you've done in your body, whether it's good or bad. However, if you feel like coming up negative on that side of things is going to get you cast out of heaven, it's not. Because you're not coming into heaven on your righteousness. You're coming in wrapped in the righteousness of Jesus. You're not coming in under your identity as Mark Lautenschlager or Sam Smith, capital sinners. We're coming in under the, the, the heading of, you know, being God's child, being God's son. We are adopted into his family. And so his, he will be faithful and he will be loyal to us even if we've not managed to be that way with him. Mm -hmm. And what we've done for his sake moves on to receive eternal significance, and all the ways that we squandered might be lost, but how we have lived for him receives an eternal eternal reward. That's 1 Corinthians 3. So there is a consequence of whether or not you live for Jesus as a Christian. There, it, it matters, but at the end of the day, your entrance into heaven or not is not conditioned upon your goodness. Mm-hmm. You will, it says, you know, you'll enter in as one escaping through the flames, <laughs> but right. you'll enter. All right. Yes, your your pants will be gone <laughs> <laughs> because you know, liar, liar, pants on fire. So you know, there we have it. Um, you know, that's the thing that it says is that. Um, you know he he will suffer loss if if his if his works are burned up he'll suffer loss but he himself will be saved such as mm-hmm. yet so as through fire and uh, if you escape from a fire in your house many times all you have are the clothes on your back and in some situations those clothes are smoldering also so you know it's like God is telling you that. You may see all of this misguided effort burn up, but you're still getting into heaven. Now, you know, obviously we don't want that. We want to be able to see the permanence of our labors for him Mm -hmm. so that it gives us, you know, Revelation, the Revelation talks about us having crowns that we earn that we then place at his feet Mm -hmm. because we know who really earned that crown. Um, so you're going to hate to not have that, you know, that's mm-hmm. a, that's a beautiful moment, you know, when the people of God receive these rewards for what they've done and immediately they lay them at the feet of God. That's um, cool. That's a, a cool fun scene. thought. It's a cool scene. So verse 28 is, there's an interesting thing here. You actually pointed it out to me this week. Mm-hmm. Uh, you texted me this information. Verse 28 is a very familiar one. Paul says, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Um, what was it that you, why don't you tell everybody what it was you noticed about this and how this verse uh, deals with a, a, an old-time Jewish I guess it was like a morning blessing or something mm-hmm. like that. It's still used in some synagogues. It was called the Burkot Hashakar. And that in Hebrew means blessings at dawn. And there are series, I want to say there's 14 blessings or something like that. But at the beginning, these are some of the blessings that they would have said back then as they came into synagogue. And you kind of have to brace yourself. But this is what they would say. Blessed are you, our God and King of the world, who did not make me a Gentile. 
Blessed are you, our God and King of the world, who did not make me a slave. Blessed are you, our God and King of the world, who did not make me a woman. And so what you're, these Jewish men would come into the synagogue in the morning or, you know, offering up their, their blessings in, in the morning and they would say, thank you, God, for not making me a Gentile, a slave, or a woman. And they were seen as inferior. Like if, if you were born as any of those, you were seen as less than. And so when Paul, notice the order that Paul does, because it's a direct rebuke at that blessing that was commonplace in that day. What does he say? There's neither Jew nor Greek. So forget about, you know, thanking God for not being a Gentile. There's neither slave nor free. So stop thanking God that you're not a slave. There's neither male nor female. So do not thank God that you're not a female. And what is he saying? You know, the traditional Jewish life had partitioned all of these people. If you were a Jew, then you got the covenant. If you were a Gentile, you're out. If you're slave, you're clearly cursed by God. But if you're free, then God's favors on you. If you're a male, you're clearly favored. If you're female, you're lesser than. And Paul's coming and saying, stop that nonsense. The gospel has now made everybody one equal in dignity in Christ. Do not put up dividing walls there. And then that next line, which is the last verse of chapter three, he says, and if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. And that's amazing because in the ancient world, you know, the Gentiles were seen as outcasts. Slaves were not entitled to inheritance. Women had all kinds of restrictions on what they could inherit and property rights, and they had to be married and all these other things in order to get an inheritance. And here comes Paul saying, stop that nonsense. Everyone, everyone is an heir of God. Everyone is getting the eternal inheritance. Everybody's entitled to dignity in Christ. So right. stop. It's really bold, and they would have absolutely known what he was talking about when he penned that line. Yeah. Well, that is chapter 3 of Galatians. Um, we have one more week in this study, so we're going to have to do or two, one more week or two more weeks? Two more. I think we get two more, so we're going to have to condense something. We're going to have to condense. <laughs> good, good luck at that. We, we're yeah, really right. good at we're condensing good at things. <laughs> We're, we're good at unpacking things slowly and overthinking them. I don't know that we're good at condensing, but we're going to have to try. Uh, get some of this pulled down and, and distilled a little bit. But I think that, it, you know, at this point, what's been interesting to me is that Paul has done what Paul almost always does, which is he starts off with a description of what's happening right now. I'm writing to you because you got these Judaizers that are trying to convince you of something. You've been bewitched. You've made all these bad decisions. You're turning away from grace and the gospel. And then we have a couple of chapters of Paul giving them some theology, some some teaching behind the scenes. This chapter to me was one where I'm like, okay, and this is where he's laying out for you and I why we should or, or shouldn't be the way that he's, he's reminded to say to us that we were in the first two chapters. And then at the end, it's like he, he will wind up with saying, and this is how you should live. It's the, mm-hmm. it's the pattern of almost every one of his letters mm-hmm. is to start off with what's going on, 
to start off with what's what's working behind the scenes, mm-hmm. and then to finish with, and this is what I expect of you. Yeah, um, and there's a reason for that. You have to know what God has done for you first before yes. you're even capable of carrying out what He wants you to. Yeah. And you have to know that his love and his acceptance of you is not conditioned upon you being able to carry that out. So right. it gives you a freedom. It's, right. Paul always wants you to know you're his first. You belong to God. You're accepted by God first. Now here's what God would like you to do. Yeah. Well, that's a good word, my friend. And I think that it's one that we're going to have to end on. We hope that you've enjoyed your time with us this morning. Um, that it's been profitable for you. If you would like to correspond with us, our email address is outofwater at riovistachurch.com. That's R-I-O vistachurch.com. And that's also where you can find all the back episodes of the Out of Water podcast at riovistachurch.com slash outofwater. You can also find the full series on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and Amazon Podcasts now as well as some other smaller distributors. So the podcast is continuing to find new homes. It's spreading out there, getting more listeners, I hope. Um, and I'm grateful that uh, you all mm-hmm. are listening because we've, we've heard from many of you with some encouraging words, and we very much appreciate that. Sam and I will return next week with more uh, from the Book of Galatians, and we look forward to you joining us then. We hope you enjoyed your time with us and you will both subscribe to the podcast and listen regularly. You can find out more about Out of Water, catch up on past episodes, and access show notes at our website, riovistachurch.com slash outofwater.